Well, let's open in prayer. Lord, we do thank you for this morning that you brought us here. Your providence has guided us. Your love for your saints, for your believers, uh, has brought us to this place to learn, to gather, to be equipped in this class and other classes that we offer like this here and know scripture better, to know how to speak to the world about Christ, to know of men and women who've gone before us in church history. We want to know doctrine better. Lord, we want to know how to defend the faith. We want to know how to tell others and teach others about the Bible and why we believe the scriptures. Help us today to be equipped for that and give us more wisdom and knowledge so that we might apply it to our own life and help others as well. In the name of Jesus, amen. So we've been going through church history, and I think we've covered uh, pretty much the first 500 years, roughly, at least up to the uh, 400s, and we've covered the men in church history uh, who've contributed the most to either preaching or theological books, theological knowledge. Uh, We still have some things to cover in the early church, like today's topic, canonicity, and we're also going to look at the early church councils, which start in the early church and even go a bit past that time period. But generally, the early church period is from the time that the apostles died up until about 500. Now, it's an arbitrary number, 500, but that's generally accepted as the early church. And then, of course, that's even divided in half between those who came before the Council of Nicaea and those who came after the Council of Nicaea. Uh, The reason 500 is often chosen is because that's when more medieval theology begins to develop. And it's also right after the fall of the Roman Empire. So much of the early church is associated with growth in both theology and the church's growth overall geographically uh, according to the Roman Empire boundaries. After the Roman Empire falls apart, that kind of thinking doesn't work. We have to now talk about Christianity universally throughout all different nations and kingdoms. And it begins to develop a more medieval, we could even say Roman Catholic theology, even though that's not fully developed in 500. That's kind of the beginning of what's going to develop over the next thousand years in church history. So let's talk about canonicity. Canonicity. What is it? That's today's topic Um, Quite a bit of information, not all of it's church history, some of it's just theological concepts that we need to know. Some of it is how the the Bible actually came together, the the New Testament. And while we're on the New Testament, we might as well talk about the Old as well. And uh, some of it's just a way that we can help others understand Scripture better. So the word canonicity comes from the word canon. So today... You know, kids talk about the canon of Star Wars or the canon of Tolkien. Uh, canon is the standardized set of writings about a certain thing or subject. And so that comes from the Bible, the biblical canon. And it's a Greek word, kanon, which is a word that originally meant a reed, but later to, be, to mean a measuring reed used as a ruler standard. So they had a yardstick that they made out of a reed, and this was their canon. And if they wanted to measure if something was accurate or not, they would put that read down. And so that's how the word gets used as a standard for what's going to be in the Bible. What's the standard? How do we determine that? Or do we even determine it? That's a good question. Canonicity refers to the church's recognition and acceptance of the books of Scripture as God's inspired word. 
So what is recognized as Scripture by the church and what is accepted as the books of Scripture by the church? Basically, we're asking a theological question. How do we know which book should be in the Bible? Who gets to determine that? And how has the church determined this issue in the past? Do I get to determine how many books are in the Bible? Which ones? Did Constantine, the emperor, get to determine that? Does the Pope get to decide today, as the Roman Catholic Church says, or previous councils? Do one of you guys in here get to decide? Y'all make up the rule? That's always an issue when it comes to anything in theology, anything in the church. What's the authority? Who's the authority? Who gets to make that decision? So, why does it even matter, first of all? This is just heady stuff for theologians and and scholars and pastors, right? Well, it matters because there's more and more attacks every day on the Bible. And one of the attacks that comes over and over again throughout church history, even today, is what books should be included, what books should be recognized by true believers. And the best way to take out something you don't like in a book is to undermine its authority. To say that, that the Apostle Paul didn't write 1 Timothy. Because that's the one that says a woman should not have authority over a man in the church. And so the best way to get rid of that is to say Paul didn't write it. This happened in the second century. And suddenly it takes a, a lower step to the rest of the books of the Bible. And this continues today with much, much scholarship coming out attacking Scripture. It also prevents false teaching. There's a lot of false teaching in books outside the Bible. And when people try to include some of those in the Bible, they're called apocrypha, that's where a lot of bad doctrine comes in. And so we need to know what should be there so we're clear on what shouldn't be there. It's clearly drawing a line. When you drive down the road, you need to see the lines so you know where to go. If there's not lines and it's dark, especially without those little uh, fluorescent or whatever they call it, reflective uh, paint, you're just going to drive off in the ditch. And it's the same with our spiritual life. So here's some examples. Today there's uh, much talk about the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Judas. These are Gnostic books. They come from Gnosticism. So in the 2nd century, 3rd century, people started writing extra Gospels. And your gospel is not going to be read unless you attach an apostle's name to it. And so they attach the gospel of Thomas. They attach a gospel of Judas. They even said uh, an apocalypse of Peter, as if Peter wrote about the end times like John did in Revelation. Well, these are Gnostic books. They got buried in the sands of Egypt. And in the 1800s, people dug them up as they were doing excavations, found these scrolls and different broken jars and such. And they said, look. These have been hidden from us for a thousand years, two thousand years. This is new. This is awesome. They publish it. You go to Barnes and Noble today, you find these silly books. Second Maccabees, that's an apocryphal book. And this is where the Roman Catholic view of purgatory comes from, or at least where they point to support it, because they consider Second Maccabees part of the Bible. So they can point to that and say this is a true doctrine found in Scripture. It's not found anywhere else. It's not found in our Bibles, but it's found in 2 Maccabees. Thirdly, evangelism. It's important to know this so we can evangelize. If you're proclaiming the gospel, if you're showing people Christ, what's your standard for doing that? How do you determine what Christ is really like? What's his nature? How do you determine his 
His one person, two natures. That He's fully God, fully man. You just make that up. No, you have to have an ultimate standard. You have to have God's Word. And so that brings up the question, well, what is God's Word? Because the Mormons have extra books. See, they can point to other books and say, this also teaches us about God, about Jesus, about man. That's uh, the Pearl of Great Price, the Doctrine of Covenants, and the Book of Mormon. So they have the King James Bible. They just add one, two, three other books and call that Scripture as well. So if you're discussing this with a Mormon friend or someone you meet, they're going to go to these sources to back up their theology as well as the Bible. And you, you have one true word right here in Scripture. And so you need to just know that they might be coming with that argument and that might come up so that you can help them understand that's not Scripture. These were written by a man. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses see their publication called The Watchtower as authoritative. So The Watchtower, it just looks like a little magazine. It just looks like something uh, that they would hand to you so you can read. But it's official, official doctrine for their group. I won't call them a church. For their cults, that is official doctrine written by the Watchtower Society. And they add that to Scripture which means they can always change. So the Jehovah's Witnesses started by trying to predict the end times. They missed the date a few times, and they just can correct it in their Watchtower Society magazine. Uh, here's one writer. He said, Materials such as the Watchtower are almost as significant to the witnesses as the Bible. Since the information is presented as the inspired work of theologians, and they are therefore believed to contain as much truth as biblical text. So just realize when you're talking with these folks, they don't just use their translation of the Bible. They're using something else that they elevate to the same level as Scripture. Roman Catholics and Greek Orthodox, they have added Old Testament books. And these are called the Apocrypha. So I just mentioned 2 Maccabees. There are many others we'll look at in a moment. If they want to find a certain doctrine, that's often where they will go. And they will quote from these. And so you at least need to be aware. There's a lot of social media posts that fly around that sound like scripture. And they'll say something like Ecclesiasticus instead of Ecclesiastes. And if you're not careful, you'll miss that little last part. Ecclesiasticus, which is an actual apocrypha book. Not Ecclesiastes, the biblical book. And also New Age cults and Gnostics who look to the Gnostic writings for spiritual teaching. And so Gnostic books like the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Judas get thrown in as well. So every cult out there is trying to determine what their holy writings are. And that often changes and they add to it over time. Also the, the question of an open versus a closed canon. Can new books be added today? Is someone going to find a new Bible book buried away somewhere in the Middle East? Do Pentecostal and Charismatic apostles give us new revelation? If there truly are apostles today, and apostles wrote the New Testament, or at least oversaw all the people who did, if they didn't write it themselves, which most of the time it is an apostle writing, but if apostles write Scripture, then can't new Scripture be written today if they're truly apostles? So it opens up all kinds of questions with regards to prophecy and revelation and people who say that they're speaking 
the words of God to the church. And always the big question, who gets to decide? Who gets to decide? Who gets to decide? The Pope, a denomination, the charismatic church? You know, if, if two brothers in the church have a disagreement over doctrine, then what's the standard? The standard is the Bible. What if they both claim Bible verses? Well, then they have to go and take it up to the elders. And as far as the church goes, in our bylaws, it says that the elders are the ones who uh, determine the doctrine of the church based on Scripture. We don't determine doctrine. We determine the right interpretation based on exegetical work of Scripture. And so, in the Catholic Church, though, the Pope doesn't just determine their best interpretation. The Pope gets to decide what goes into the Bible, and he gets to add to it as he is continuing to speak from his chair, which is the vicar of Christ, the whatever he calls all the titles that he gives himself. The sixth reason we need to know this is, was the New Testament canon put together at the Nicene Council under Emperor Constantine the Great in uh, 325? A lot of Christians believe this. This was the Da Vinci Code book and movie, real popular. And I'm going to date myself. Was that 15, 20 years ago now? How long ago did Da Vinci Code come out? Anybody remember? You don't have to admit you read it. How long? Early 90s. Okay, even further back. Almost 30 years ago. And it became popular. They made a movie out of it. He wrote another book and so on. Uh, Dan Brown, The Da Vinci Code. And it is proposing, well not just proposing, assuming that the Council of Nicaea decided what was in Scripture. And Constantine basically got to choose. So that's an easy way to dismiss the Bible. Some emperor comes along, claims he's a Christian, picks out books of the Bible. We don't have to listen to this guy. We don't have to listen to the, the books of the Bible. He, he picked those. So this is sort of popular. It's, it's made its way out into the world. A lot of uh, new Christians even think this. This uh, type of accusation is popular, like I said, in the Da Vinci Code. They will also attempt to insert other myths into the issue of canonicity, like the church took control and destroyed all the other books. So the reason the gospel of Judas and Thomas was never heard of is because the church went around burning books, right? The evil church. And there was a wide variety of Christian beliefs before this. These are actually what, this is what scholars are saying. There was lots of different types of Christianities. There wasn't just one orthodox type of thinking. There were lots of different sects and, and doctrines and all this stuff. And so who knows what early Christianity was like? Because all the rest of them got wiped out. See, people got power in one part of the church, and they took over and wiped out all the doctrines that the other people believed. This is sort of the narrative going around out there about Christianity. Number seven, many liberal Bible scholars today want to take out parts of the New Testament so as not to have certain doctrines binding on Christians. This is that idea, like I said, of getting rid of Paul. Uh, liberal scholars today only believe Paul wrote about half the books that are attributed to him. Even when it says the Apostle Paul, as the, they agree that that's in the original document, right? The Apostle Paul writing to them. Like in Romans, they just think that even though his name's there, it wasn't actually Paul. It was somebody writing for him. So we need to de determine between these two things. Was the Bible books, the canon, was that chosen by somebody or was it received by the church? See, if God gave it, then it's received. We just have to recognize it. 
But if we chose it, if the church chose it, well, that's up to each individual person and their opinions and preferences and so on. So it's important to remember only God himself has the authority to tell us what makes up a divinely inspired book. If it's God's word, he's going to give us help in determining that. He's going to show us that it's his word. 2 Peter 1.20 But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. So Scripture is not just somebody thinking off the top of their head, writing it down. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. So true prophecy from God is not just a person deciding what they're going to do, but it's God working through them. You see, men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That's how it happened. It, it was written by men. They were moved along or born along by the Holy Spirit. And they're actually speaking God's words for him. Not dictation, not close your, close your eyes and just scribble on a piece of paper. Wow, look, First Peter, you know. It's not like that. They are using their own abilities, their natural giftings, their spiritual giftings, all of these things, all of their past years that they've ministered in the church when they sit down to write scripture. But it's still the spirit working through them in that moment and through their whole life. And they are writing down Words spoke from God. So God has the authority to tell us what makes up a divine inspired book. 2 Timothy 3.16 All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching. The word inspired there is literally breathed out. So the words of God are breathed out in a sense, metaphorically speaking from him. Therefore reproof and he goes on to tell us what they're for. And so we need that. We need the word of God. And God has given it to us, and he's also showed us that it is his work. Here's what one theologian said. History alone cannot answer the question of what the canon finally is. Theology alone can do that. See, this is a theological point. Number one here, only God himself has authority to tell us what makes up a divinely inspired book. That has nothing to do with the church in the past. It has nothing to do with the early church, church fathers, council of Nicaea. It's simply saying... The Bible testifies to itself because it is the Word of God. Second main point you need to know theologically here is the early church did not choose but only received or recognized what had been handed down to them from the apostles at the beginning of the church. If I buy, you a, if I buy my wife a Christmas gift, I shouldn't say if, when I buy my wife a Christmas gift, which I've already done that by the way, so don't give me a hard time. She doesn't know what it is yet. I give it to her. She receives it. She didn't go and pick it out. She didn't go and choose it and wrap it. I give it to her as a gift. She receives it. Well, the church didn't go and pick out the books of the Bible. God gave us his word as a gift, and we receive it. We, we just recognize it. That's a Bible book. So here's J.I. Packer, famous theologian who lived almost 100 years, just recently died a few years ago. He said, The church no more gave us the New Testament as a canon than Sir Isaac Newton gave us the force of gravity. God gave us gravity by his work of creation. And similar, he gave us the New Testament canon by inspired, inspiring the individual books that make it up. Newton did not create gravity, but recognized it. He studied and he saw it and he said, gravity. He gave it a name. We recognize what's already been given by God. So how do we know that the books in the canon that we have today should even be there? How do we know that? Well, as I've already said, Scripture attests to itself. 
It's self-authenticating. The Bible, when you read it, has hints, sometimes more obvious than other times, hints all the way throughout that it is indeed the Word of God. And secondly, the witness of the Holy Spirit. So this isn't just an objective thing. It's not as if you can just say, here, read it, and you'll see it's Scripture. Because what happens when you give that to an unbeliever? They'll still reject it. And we don't understand that sometimes. We don't get it. Why would an unbeliever reject something that's so clearly true? Something that's so obvious. I mean, it says things about man and man's sin that we know now. It's so obvious. But the Holy Spirit has to be in someone to accept that as truth. Because the unbeliever has glasses that are completely covered. They're sunshades that are blacked out. And when they look at the Bible, they only see the grammar, the poetry, things that man sees. They don't see the self-authenticating part. They don't see that it's written by God. So here's how the um, London Baptist Catechism and uh, John Piper updated it a few years ago. So it says the Bible evidences itself to be God's word. How, do, how does it work? How does the Bible evidence itself? Well, the heavenliness of its doctrine. When you read the Bible, it's talking about heavenly things. It's talking about spiritual things. It's talking about only things that God could write. We would not write in the doctrine of election. We would not write in the doctrine of total depravity. If we were writing the Bible, it would be written so that man was built up and God was brought down. But it's the other way around, isn't it? The unity of its parts. Have you ever noticed all those cross-references in the Bible? How how does that work? From Genesis to Revelation, all these cross-references. Well, that's because there's one author. And its power to convert sinners and to edify saints. It's amazing how many people are converted just by reading the Bible. Just by reading Scripture. How would that even happen if God wasn't behind it? But it says here at the end of the Catechism answer, only the Spirit of God can make us willing to agree and submit to the Bible as the Word of God. An unbeliever should hear the Bible. An unbeliever should be called to submit to it. But ultimately, they have to have the Spirit if they're willing to agree and submit to the Bible. So these two things, these two theological concepts, make up the answer of how we know what book should be in our Bibles. It's got to attest to itself, and then the Spirit and believers witnesses, testifies to it. So let's go through how we know what books should be in the Old Testament. Well, God himself wrote the Ten Commandments. You remember the the finger of God writing on stone? He gave them to Moses. Well, that's easy. So the Ten Commandments have to be from the Word of God. We can at least agree with everyone on that. So the Ten Commandments, uh, speaking of how that was done, Exodus 31, 18, we won't look at these for time's sake, but Exodus thirty-two sixteen. God commanded the prophets to write down his word. The old King James said, Thus saith the Lord. This is God's word. God would tell them, Speak my word. And then in our Bibles, it's actually quoted. That's a lot right there. That's a lot of scripture. Not just the prophets, but things like the Psalms. Uh, things like the historical books, which the Jews call former prophets, early prophets. First uh, and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, Chronicles, Esther—all of these different books are considered prophets or writings. 
So here is some uh, instances here. Deuteronomy 31, 24 through 26. Joshua 24, 26. 1 Samuel 10, 25. Jeremiah 32. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 2. These are just a few examples where God commanded the prophets to write down His word. Also, this one's big. Jesus considered the 39 books of our Old Testament to be the word of God. He doesn't quote from 1 Maccabees. He doesn't quote from... Ecclesiasticus, but he does consider the 39 books that we have today to be the Old Testament Word of God. Luke 24, 44. Now he said to them, these are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you. Remember, he's on the road uh, to Emmaus with these guys. That all things which are written about me in the law of Moses, that's five books of the Bible right there, the first five books, the law of Moses, the Pentateuch, we call it. The prophets, that's, all the historical books that I just mentioned, plus the latter prophets, which start with Isaiah and our Bibles and move forward, and the Psalms. Psalms includes all the poetical writings. So that would include Psalms. Also under Psalms would be things like the Song of Solomon, things like Job, things like Ecclesiastes and Proverbs. He said all three sections of the Old Testament. I'm there and these things about me must be fulfilled. All three divisions. The Hebrew Bible today is divided up into three different sections. The law, the prophets, and the writings. Even what we call the Apocrypha, the Roman Catholics and Greek Orthodox separate out from the law, the prophets, and the writings. So the law, the prophets, and the writings has not changed over the centuries. Others have just tried to add to it. Like the Mormons, they didn't change the King James. They just took the King James and added three other big books along with it. Every Old Testament book is quoted or alluded to in the New Testament, except for three, and this sort of makes sense why they wouldn't be, Ruth, Ezra, and Song of Solomon. And some people would even argue that these are alluded to. There are some very close verses in the New Testament, and at least some of the themes from these books. So Walt Kaiser states the New Testament has between two and 4,000 allusions to person, events, or teachings in the Old. Two to four thousand, because an allusion's up to each person to figure out if that's truly a connection. It's it's not a direct quote. How do we know? It sort of sounds like it is, and so that's why there's such a variance. At the Council of Jamnia in AD ninety, the Jews got together, and AD ninety. The reason they got together is because the temple had been destroyed in seventy AD. The Romans came in, they destroyed Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple. The Jews scattered. They were scattered everywhere around the Roman Empire. And the rabbis came together in Jamnia, which is a little town in Israel. And they determined, okay, what are we going to do going forward? How are we going to organize Judaism? The Christians are out there doing their thing. How are we going to organize this better since our temple is gone? So they got together to preserve the Old Testament scriptures. We've got to make sure we have a copy of these so we can copy and copy and make copies of the Bible to spread around the Old Testament. So they started talking about what exactly should be in the Bible. They did not exclude any book that had previously been included, nor did they add any books to the Old Testament canon. Which means our Old Testament today looks just like the Council of Jamnia recognized in 90 A.D., and just like Jesus recognized 
And just like all the Jews who came before him recognized that scripture was being written. This is key. A lot of uh, liberals today will say, well, even the Old Testament was determined by the Council of Jamnia. No, they just recognized. They said, here's all the scrolls we have. The temple's destroyed. There's probably a lot of scrolls burned there. Here's what we have. What should be in the Bible? What should be out of the Bible? And what they saw, what they recognized, looks just like our Old Testament today. I mean, obviously, it was not in English. And it was ordered differently. Certain books were a little bit different. So here's a comparison here. They have what they call 24 books. So the law for the, for the Jews is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We just have what we call the historical books. Sometimes we split off the law. But that's Genesis all the way through Esther. It's just a matter of how we organize these. Uh, they call the prophets the former and the latter prophets. So the former is Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. The latter is Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then all the minor prophets is what we call them. Uh, we have the wisdom books, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. Same books that they have. They're just down in their writings. You see at the bottom left, they call this Tikatuvim, the writings. Psalms, Job, Proverbs, Ruth, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, Esther, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles. So I said earlier, Chronicles was a former prophet. It's actually considered uh, one of the writings. So here's a trick question. Why do they have 24 and we have 39, but I said it's the same as what they had? Yeah, that is a big part of it. So they just say kings because it was one book for them. Samuel, one book for them. And when we read it, we need to keep that in mind. First and second Samuel, if you get to the end of first Samuel, it just picks up right after that in second Samuel. Why is that? Because it was one book. How to get divided? When they translated it into Greek, into the Septuagint, they divided it up to make it easier to put on certain scrolls and whatnot. Practical reasons, not any kind of theological reasons. Uh, another reason is because they included some of these smaller books with some of the larger books. So we'll come to that in a minute. I'll show you another guy's list. But this is just a generally accepted list of the Jewish scripture today and our Bibles today. They are the same books. They're just ordering a little bit differently the books. So what about this Apocrypha? Apocrypha means hidden writings. They were hidden away. And that draws people to them because they're the secret writings. This is the stuff that nobody wants you to know about. It's been stuck away, hidden somewhere. And now we found it. Or you really should be careful with that. It's, you know, it's dangerous, which just draws more people to it to want to read it. These were the writings the church put away because they were of questionable value to the church. So the early church put them away not to keep them a secret, but just to say, put them away. We don't need those. Those are just, that's just a commentary. That's just a, a historical fiction book. Don't, don't necessarily burn it, but just put it back on the back shelf somewhere. That's not one of the important books that we need in the Bible because God gave it to us. So the Apocrypha are accepted as canonical, though, today by the Roman Catholic Church, by the Greek Orthodox Church, and some liberal Protestant scholars. So Anglicanism, or what we call in America Episcopalianism, also includes the Old Testament Apocrypha in their lectionary for example of life, but not to establish any doctrine. So they say it has some importance. We can put it in to learn some things, but we don't get our doctrine from there. So here they are. Baruch, 
Well, let's just talk about the 11 Roman Catholic ones that they've added. They recognize 11 more than we do in the Old Testament. Baruch plus the letter of Jeremiah. So they, they have a book called Baruch, which is the, the guy that wrote um, for, he was the scribe for Jeremiah. And then they also add a little letter of Jeremiah. The prayer of Azariah, Susanna, Bell and the dragon, 1st Maccabees, 2nd Maccabees. Tobit, Judith, additions to Esther, big additions to Esther, and the wisdom of Solomon. And then Ecclesiasticus, also called Sirach. So this is where you, you read something on social media. It sounds so great, you know, loving your wife, loving marriage. And it says Sirach. You know, you got to read the reference. Sirach 7.22. Or Ecclesiasticus is another word for it. So these are the ones they added. Anybody heard of these books? Anybody wanted to read these books? <laughs> Anybody read these books? A few of you, okay. Uh, Bell and the Dragons, interesting. Greek, Greek Orthodoxy today, they accept all the 11 I just mentioned, plus five more. Uh, first, Estrus, which is third Ezra, really. Prayer of Manasseh. Third Maccabees, so they've got even more that they're recognizing. Fourth Maccabees, Psalm 151. So what are these Apocrypha? They're basically books written after the Old Testament canon had closed, after Malachi wrote the last book of the Old Testament. Other books were written by men that were not inspired by God, but they were Jewish men, maybe a rabbi, and they became elevated in tradition. And so because of that, the Roman Catholic Church wanted to adopt those Greek Orthodox Church, and so on. But they rejected a scripture because Jesus and the New Testament writers never quote from them. That's the main reason we don't recognize the Apocrypha. Now, there's some other reasons I'm going to give you, but Jesus and the early, uh, the New Testament writers never quote from them. They also contain historical and theological errors, like praying for the dead in 2 Maccabees, which the Roman Catholic Church used to support purgatory. All kinds of, if you read, um, I think it's 2 Maccabees, where Solomon's talking to birds and ostriches, it's like Narnia. You know, it's just fiction type of stuff, which would entertain people. But you can't take your doctrine from things like that. Historically, the Jews themselves did not recognize them as scripture. And we know this from Jewish writers like Philo of Alexandria and 20 BC. He never even quotes from them in all of his works that he wrote. He was a philosopher. He was a Jew. He wrote all about different things, including the Jewish religion. Never quotes from these. So one scholar today says the Jews, of course, read these books, read these books, and so did the early Christians. But the idea that they were scripture is a purely Christian phenomenon of slow and irregular development, and always opposed by the greatest scholars, such as Origen and Jerome. The early church did not recognize these. They didn't want to burn them and throw them away. They understood that they were. Uh, valuable as far as tradition goes, but that's it. They're not the Word of God. So here's Flavius Josephus. Josephus traveled around with the emperor as he's going through Judea, conquering all of these towns all the way down to Jerusalem. Uh, Josephus was actually a mayor of one of those towns, and he goes over to the Roman side to help them. And so he writes all about that. It's called the Jewish Wars. He writes other writings as well, like this one. And he talks about what the Jews believe. For we have not an innumerable multitude of books among us. So he's saying, look, we can number these. 
disagreeing from or contradicting one another as the Greeks have. The Greeks have all kinds of books that fight back and forth. He says, us as Jews, we don't have an uncountable number and they don't disagree with each other. We only have 22 books. So that's a little different than the 24 I mentioned earlier. Uh, which contain the records of all the past times, he says, which are justly believed to be divine. And of them, five belong to Moses, which contain his laws and the traditions of the origin of mankind till his death. This interval of time was a little short of 3,000 years. So there's some, um, you know, early, um, what is it called? Young earth creationism there, which is good. We believe that. But as to the time from the death of Moses till the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, who reigned after Xerxes, the prophets who were after Moses, wrote down what was done in their times in 13 books. The remaining four books contain hymns to God and precepts for the conduct of human life. Continuing here, he says, It is true, our history hath been written since Artaxerxes, very particularly, but hath not been esteemed of the like authority with the former by our forefathers. So there's been some books written since the Jews came back from Persia, since they came back to the land, recorded in Ezra and Nehemiah. There have been some other books written since then, but they're not esteemed. They're not highly esteemed of being Scripture. Uh, he, say, he goes on to say, And how firmly we have a given credit to those books of our own nation is evident by what we do. For during so many ages as have already passed, no one has been so bold as to either add anything to them, to take anything from them, or to make any change in them. No one's added to our holy Bible, he says. But it becomes natural to all Jews, immediately and from their very birth, to esteem those books to contain divine doctrines, and to persist in them, and if occasion be, willingly to die for them. So some men in church history. Uh, we didn't talk much about, uh, I don't even know if I mentioned Melito, but he was Bishop of Sardis around 170. And uh, he is receiving a letter, uh, or he wrote a letter about the Bible. What's included in the Bible of his day, this is 170. So maybe two generations after the Apostle John. And this is recorded later in a church history book in the 300s called Eusebius's Ecclesiastical History. So we have that letter because it was recorded there by Eusebius. He says, When I came to the east and reached the place where these things were preached and done and learnt accurately the books of the Old Testament, I set down the facts and sent them to you. These are their names. Five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Joshua the son of Nun, Judges, Ruth, four books of kingdoms. What's the four books of kingdoms? So they had been divided by this point. They're translated into Greek. The Septuagint divides them. Two books of Chronicles, the Psalms of David, the Proverbs of Solomon and his wisdom, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Songs, Job, the Prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, the Twelve in a single book, Daniel, Ezekiel, Ezra. So he's missing some. Why is he missing some? Esther, Nehemiah. So what's missing? Lamentations. Probably included with Jeremiah. It's long-held tradition that Jeremiah wrote it. And uh, you put them on the same scroll together, include them together. And there wouldn't be no reason to mention, because Jeremiah the prophet wrote Lamentations. So one book, probably. Nehemiah has always been seen as connected with Ezra. In fact, many argue today, and I'm, I'm more of this mindset, that it's one continuous book, Ezra and Nehemiah. It's just two different um, authors, but it's meant to be one continuous story here. Esther is not in the list. Not really sure why. And then the important part is none of the Apocrypha. He mentions his list 
And you don't see any Second Maccabees, you don't see any talk about Bell and the dragon, all those things. So Jerome, we studied Jerome, was that last week? And he translated uh, a new translation into Latin for the people of his day. It's called the Vulgate. It's still used by the Catholic Church, although they've updated it, even though they try to say they haven't. It's like the King James only people. Right? They say this is the holy inspired word of God, translated, uh, overseen by the Holy Spirit. But it, the, the problem is the King James that you read today isn't like the King James of 1611. And even the 1611 had multiple corrections because when they printed it, they messed up a lot of words. Like changing the, um, a he one time to she. So they call it the she Bible. And other more uh, interesting translations are printing mistakes. So Jerome translated the Vulgate which was a good Bible for the Latin readers of his day. But it had some problems as well. He says, As then the church reads Judah, Tobit, and the books of Maccabees. So he says they read those books, but does not admit them among the canonical scriptures. So let it also read these two volumes for edification of the people, not to give authority to the doctrines of the church. I saw this to show you how hard it is to master the book of Daniel, which in Hebrew contains neither the history of Susanna, that's one of the apocryphal books, nor the hymn of the three youths, nor the fables of Bell and the dragon. So even Jerome, early on here, is saying, these books have no place in the Bible. People read them. You know, people read John Calvin's Institutes today, but it's not scripture. Right? You have the Valley of Vision prayer book, and it's probably sitting right next to your Bible, maybe on top of your Bible on a stack. That doesn't mean it's scripture. It's helpful for our Christian life, but it doesn't make it scripture. So in response to the reformers later, though, here's what the Roman Catholic Church will say. And the Council of Trent, they say, If anyone does not accept as sacred and canonical the aforesaid books, that's the list of Apocrypha, in their entirety and with all their parts, as they have been accustomed to be read in the Catholic Church, and as they are contained in the old Latin Vulgate edition. See, they're saying, well, there they are, Jerome put them in. Well, he put them in, but he clearly said they're not Scripture. They're just added, because back then it took a lot of money and effort to translate and to put something into writing, so they would include them on the end. It's like today if we had the Bible plus Pilgrim's Progress. He said, if anyone knowingly and deliberately rejects, or this is the Council of Trent, if you reject those books as scripture, let him be anathema. Out of the church, not a believer, excommunicated. This is when they took their final stand and said, the Catholic Church believes in the Apocrypha. And if you don't, well then you're not a Christian. The first Christians had the preaching and teaching of the apostles. So now we're moving on to the New Testament. And it was clearly recognized by 400 I think even much earlier than that, but pretty much everyone agrees by 400, what we call the New Testament has been recognized. So how was it recognized? Well, they had the preaching and teaching of the apostles. And books were circulating, but it's not as if the letters of Paul were being furiously copied. You couldn't stick it in the copy machine and print out 100 copies for your friends. It took money. It took somebody who knew how to write. It took a scribe, and, and the papyrus that it was written on was very expensive. But then the Marcion heresy came along. The Marcionite heresy, remember Marcion? He said that we're going to cut out parts of the Bible. He said, we don't like these Jewish parts. I don't like anything to do with the Jews. I'm cutting it all out. 
and I'm going to cut all the books out that mention anything about it. I'm just going to keep Paul's letters, slice out some things there, and Luke's gospel, and slice out some things there, and that's Marcion's Bible. Now, suddenly when you're challenged, when you're attacked to defend your stance, you start to think about, okay, how are we going to do this? How are we going to defend what we believe is Scripture? So the early church fathers began to write out lists, clearly teaching people what the books of the Bible were. And even in the books that remained in Marcion's Bible, which was composed of Luke and the ten epistles of Paul, Marcion further edited Luke's Christ genealogy out, birth narratives, baptism, all the reference to Nazareth. So you end up becoming friends with a Marcionite, and he hands you a Bible, and you start reading it. How do you even know if that's Scripture? So the early church fathers became more serious about listing all the books of the Bible. And it wasn't always bound like this. See, this is easy. You go buy New American Standard or the LSB, which we just got in some copies today. You buy the LSB, you buy the New American Standard, and you look here. Well, it's all bound up, but it wasn't like that back then. You got a little scroll or you got a little, uh, what we might call a tract size booklet, but you didn't get a huge bound book like this until the 300s. So Martian's fundamental argument was that the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament were different. We've already gone through this, so I'll skip this slide a few weeks back. Then Polycarp comes along in 150, and he's a disciple of John. Remember John the Apostle? And he begins to write in there quotes. Now, he didn't footnote them, or he didn't put the reference in parentheses like we do today. But if you were a Christian who'd read these books, then you would recognize his quotes. He quotes from Matthew. He quotes from John. He quotes from 10 of Paul's epistles. He quotes from, I think that's 1 Peter and 2 John. So we're starting to see a picture here of people both listing books of the Bible and they're quoting, the early church fathers are quoting from books of the Bible, which meant these books were in circulation. Justin Martyr, 150. He wrote that the four gospels were written by the apostles and their companions. So Matthew, an apostle. Mark, not an apostle, but overseen by Peter. Then Luke, not an apostle, but overseen by Paul. He traveled with Paul. Read the book of Acts. Luke says, you'll see right where Luke comes in, because he says, we. Before that, it's just these people did this. Then suddenly he says, we did this. Who's the we? Well, it's Luke coming into the actual story that he has been recording as he interviews Paul. Um, then there's John, an apostle. So the Apostles either wrote or oversaw the Gospels. Then Irenaeus in 170, we've covered Irenaeus. He quoted from almost every book or listed as authentic in the New Testament, except Philemon, James, 2 Peter, and 3 John. It's not that he left them out because he didn't think they were Scripture. You could only put so many quotes in, right? If I just sit here and quote verse after verse in my sermon, you guys are just not going to get the message, right? Well, Irenaeus doesn't have to quote from everything. He's just pulling quotes in to back up the point that he's trying to make against all these heretics. Then the Moratorian Canon. This one's interesting. I have a picture coming up of this one. The list developed probably as a result of Marcion's heresy and the Montanus. These were the prophetic revelation. They would run around... I think, if I'm right, it was men and women running around without any clothes on, prophesying, saying that the world's going to come to an end, and here's the words of God. And so to make it very clear to Christians what the word of God was, they came up with this list. 
And it's pretty much our entire current New Testament today. In addition to some other books, the Apocalypse of Peter was listed, but noted in the list, as opposed by some. And the Shepherd of Hermas was accepted for private reading, but not public, which meant they thought it was important, but not Scripture. All Marcionite, Gnostic, and Montanist writings were rejected as non-authoritative. So that's what the Marcionite, uh, I'm sorry, the Moratorian Canon looks like. Moratorian Canon looks like that. That's a list of Bible books, and it's discussing uh, things about those books and why they should be in Scripture. So I just pulled this from Wikipedia because it's a nice chart. It tells you our present canon is on the right. So our present New Testament is the right-hand side, and the Moratorian canon is on the left. And it's thought that Matthew and Mark are in there. There's damage to the manuscripts, and sometimes it's kind of hard to tell. Probably Matthew and Mark are listed all the rest down to a section that's missing. Hebrews, James, 1 Peter, and 2 Peter. And then they think First and Second John and Third John are likely there. Jude is listed. The Apocalypse of John is listed. That's Revelation. The Apocalypse of Peter is in there. That's Apocrypha. But again, the writer of the canon makes clear that this is opposed by a lot of people in the church. And then the Wisdom of Solomon, or I think that's Ecclesiasticus was listed. Now we jump to 200, Clement of Alexandria. Clement says he has a very similar list as Irenaeus. He just doesn't include 2 uh, Timothy and 2 John. Why? Why would he not? Because he doesn't think there's scripture? No, he doesn't have a copy. He doesn't have a copy. If, if someone handed you a Bible and they had ripped out some books and you're a brand new Christian and you didn't see the pages that were ripped out, you're not going to know they're not there until somebody tells you. Um, I doubt that Clement of Alexandria doubted 2 Timothy and 2 John. But maybe you can read up on Clement of Alexandria and add, add something that I don't know there. Eusebius, this is a key because he's the one writing about the history of the church up until this point. He lists three classifications of books in his church history book. He says there's recognized books. These are books everybody recognizes. There's disputed books. There's a little bit of debate over this. And then there's heretical books. These are books that certain cults recognize, but true Orthodox Christianity does not. So here's his recognized books. The four Gospels. Acts. 14 epistles of Paul. It was thought that Paul wrote Hebrews early on. I still think that's a good argument, but a lot of scholars don't think so today. So early on they said it was 14 epistles of Paul. Um, 1 Peter, 1 John, and apparently there was some reservation, the apocalypse, that's Revelation. Then he said, there's disputed books. These are things that are still being debated amongst theologians. James, Jude, 2 Peter, 2 and 3 John, and those that are not genuine. So James, Jude, 2 Peter, 2 and 3 John, some saw this as scripture, others were still working that out. That's fine. Not everybody's at the same level on this. Here's the list of those that are, we, we would recognize today are clearly not Scripture. Acts of Paul, Shepherd of Hermas, Apocalypse of Peter, Epistle of Barnabas, the Didache, and uh, even some people debated Revelation. Heretical writings, even then, clearly included those uh, Gospel of Peter, Gospel of Thomas, Acts of Andrew, Acts of John, and other similar writings. Another manuscript has been found in North Africa that uh, includes a list. 
This manuscript includes all the New Testament book except Hebrews, James, and Jude. It's called the Cheltenham Manuscript, not because there was some English guy living in 360. Um, either he found it or they named it after him. So why aren't Hebrews, James, and Jude there? Probably they didn't have a copy of it. Or there was still some debate about those. But we get to Athanasius and it's pretty much settled. He says, again, it is not tedious to speak of the books of the New Testament. These are the four Gospels, according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Afterwards, the Acts of the Apostles and Epistles. They're called the Catholic Epistles, not Roman Catholic, but universal. They were sent out to the churches. Uh, Seven of those, namely of James, one of Peter, two of John. Uh, I'm sorry, of James, there's one. Of Peter's letters, there's two. Of John, there's three. After these, one of Jude. In addition... There are 14 epistles of Paul written in this order. And then he gives the order. Romans, 2 to the Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 2 to Thessalonians, and 1 to Hebrews. And again, 2 to Timothy, 1 to Titus, and lastly, 2 Philemon. And besides the revelation of John, that's what we call revelation. Not revelations. That's God giving you Revelations. The book of Revelation, the Revelation, the Apocalypse, which means revealing, given to John. John Frame said, when in 367, Bishop Athanasius of Alexandria published a list of books accepted in his church, there was no clamor. From that time on, Christians of all traditions, Eastern Orthodox today, Roman Catholics today, and Protestants today, agreed on the New Testament canon. Indeed, Through the centuries since, agreement on the New Testament canon has been more unanimous than on the Old Testament. See, the Old Testament, they add all these Apocrypha books, not the New Testament. Every branch there of those three branches agrees, except the liberals. But they're not really part of that branch. They claim they are. Um, Though on the surface, it might seem that ascertaining the former would have been more difficult. So I think it just took time for these books to circulate. As Christians read them, they realize... This is heavenly doctrine. This is clearly God speaking through the text, and the Holy Spirit would attest to that. And then later, regional synods like of Hippo, where Augustine was in Carthage, as well, Augustine, North Africa. These councils were under the influence of Augustine. At those regional councils, the New Testament canon that was ratified agreed with the present-day canon of 27 books. And then in 325, we get the Council of Nicaea. And even though Da Vinci Code book says that that's where the Bible was chosen, it wasn't even discussed. It wasn't even on the table. It wasn't even an issue. The emperor called the council, but he called it for general agreement on controversies, especially with the Arians. And a huge controversy at the time, the date to celebrate Easter. They put that up there with the Arian heresy. Very important. Let's look at some of these uh, early Bibles where they bound them all together, and we have copies today. Codex Vaticanus. Codex is a book. Just think of it as a book that's bound together. Not quite as nice and sturdy as this, but it was pretty good for that day. And they're starting to use less papyrus and more parchments by this time, and um, the parchments would last longer. Animal skins, more leather-like substance. Including nearly all the Bible in Codex Vaticanus, 325 to 350, this is the earliest uh, Bible bound that we have. 
and it is considered to be one of the best manuscripts of the New Testament text. After that, around 350, Codex Sinaiticus. It contains almost the entire New Testament and over half the Old. So Vaticanus, where do you think that was found? In the Vatican. Sinaiticus, where was that found? Mount Sinai. Not on top of the mountain like Moses, but there was a monastery there. And uh, so it's an interesting story, but basically a German scholar goes there in the 1800s, I believe, and he's looking through old manuscripts in their library, and he finds some scraps in a trash can, and he says, oh, this looks like an early, I don't remember the book, let's say Luke. This looks like it came from Luke. Where'd this come from? He asks around, finds the scrolls, and then he steals them and goes back home. And that becomes Codex Sinaiticus. Now there's a lot of debate on how the story actually went down. But. And then after that, Codex Alexandrinus, around 400, includes almost the entire Bible. So that's why I say by 400 it must have been settled. I think it was settled before that, just depending on the circulation of the books. And then we have a later one, Codex Bize, or Biza, the guy that came after um, Calvin. It contains the Gospels plus the Book of Acts. So these aren't named based on who wrote them. They're named on either who found them or who uh, named them. And it is written in both Greek and Latin. And then Washington, Washingtonian, I can't even say it, Washingtonianesis, if I say that right, that's hard to say, contains the four Gospels. Was that found in Washington, D.C.? No. That's where it is today, though. It's dated to 450, and I think it's in Washington today. Do you know that, Miles? Was it in Washington? Have you studied this yet? Not yet. Welcome back, Miles. And then Codex Claremontanus contains the Pauline epistles. So let's look at a few of these and we'll be done. That's what Sinaiticus looks like. It's been rebound, but this is generally what the pages look like. A little diff- difficult to read. doesn't go all the way across. It goes down these columns. All caps in Greek. Alexandrinus. It's got some Old Testament. That's Hebrew there. Vaticanus. So it's starting to look like what we would call a Bible. These aren't scrolls that you roll out. They're bound together like this. And we'll stop there. Next week we'll talk about the New Testament Apocrypha and Pseudepigrapha. A big word, Pseudepigrapha. It'll only take a few minutes to do that. And then we'll move on to the next subject. Lord, we do thank you for the Bible that we have today. We thank you for all that you've given us um, to learn, to study to know more about you. Help us to be masters of this book, not to raise up other books, even in our Reformed Protestant mind. We don't want to elevate man's teaching, man's tradition. We're going to look to Scripture. That's our authority. That's our standard. So help us to do that in the name of your Son. Amen.